you have your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 12 this morning, Romans chapter 12. As you know, we've been going through a series of series, so to speak. We've talked about the portrait of a healthy church. We looked at a portrait of a healthy family. And this morning we start a new series called A Portrait of a Healthy Christian. In order to have, and you can see kind of the digression that we've went, or maybe the, whatever you want to call it, we went from big to middle to little, and now we're to the individual. But you cannot have a healthy church and you cannot have a healthy family if you yourself are not a healthy Christian individual. You understand that, right? We have to be healthy ourselves in order to be in a healthy church and to be in a healthy family. And when you hear that word healthy, and I talk about being a healthy Christian, if you hear in that word where I'm going to talk about being healthy by eating right and exercising and jogging and walking and and doing all of that physical activity, I can tell you you're sorely mistaken because I'm absolutely disqualified, okay? because I don't exercise, I don't eat healthy. But what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be, a, to be spiritually healthy, to be the Christian, the man or woman, that individual that God has called you to be. What does a portrait of a healthy believer in Jesus Christ look like? And let me tell you, it starts with transformation. If we are going to be the man or woman that God has called us to be, we have to live a transformed life. If you have your Bibles, look in verse one. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul tells us right here from the very beginning that we need to be a living sacrifice. And do you know what the problem is with being a living sacrifice? Well, let me explain it this way. You know I like to fish, right? How many of you, when you were a kid, you used to go out fishing and you'd take that worm, right? You remember that old night crawler worm? I mean, they get this long and they're big, fat, and they're juicy, and what? they're wiggly, right? And every time you try to put them on the hook, I don't know how they do it, but their body conforms and it, I mean, it just goes in all kinds of directions and it's hard to get them on the hook so you can catch one of those fish. And when you squeeze that little worm too tight, what happens? Black stuff comes from where? I don't know where it comes from, but black stuff comes out from someplace. Have you ever figured out which is the head and the tail of a worm? I don't know. They both wiggle the same. And the problem with us being a living sacrifice is we're just like that wiggly old worm. When God puts us on his altar, instead of laying down and surrendering and willingly being obedient, we're like that wiggly worm and we wiggle around on the altar of God. And we're not the person that he's called us to be. We're not doing the things that he's called us to do. When we willingly surrender to God, the way we live becomes our act of worship. So how is your act of worship? Are you living the way that God has called you to live? We live a life of obedience and surrender if we're living, if we are a living sacrifice. We have a term that we don't use much very often. I look around in the first service, everybody knew this term, but maybe not everyone in this service will know that term. But if you've heard that term, backslider, would you raise your hand? Ooh, more than I thought, maybe. We have a term for it. That wiggly worm on the altar of God, you're a backslider. You're backsliding. 
What is a backslider? A backslider is someone who has accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and is moving away from him instead of towards him. That's a backslider. And I guarantee you I am speaking to some backsliders even in church today. There are people watching online. There are people sitting in these pews that instead of being closer to God today than they were yesterday or a year from ago, a year ago, you are further away. You're backsliding. Did you understand? Do you understand that? See, we think about backslider as somebody goes off the deep end and they go to the bars and run around on their wife or whatever the case may be. But no. Even those who have slipped backwards in their relationship with Jesus is a backslider. Now, there's two kind of backsliders, right? The first kind of backslider is that person who has a crisis of faith. And for a temporary time, they, they go away from God. But there is another kind of backslider, and that kind of backslider is that person who pretends that person who takes God out for a test drive, so to speak. You've all been on a test drive, right? And when you go out to buy that new vehicle, that car or truck, and you want that new car smell, or, or even that, well, you can't even buy a used car for as much as you can buy a new car for nowadays, right? But you go out and you take that test drive, and you want to make sure that that engine is humming, that the transmission is working perfectly. And if you're like me, and we live here in the state of Texas, I want to make sure that AC is blowing cold, right? And you want to take that car out for a test spin. See, a backsliding Christian is one who has put their trust in Jesus, and they take Jesus out for a spin. They take Jesus out for a test drive. And they think to their mind, well, I'll give God a chance. I've seen how God has worked in his life or in her life. So I'll give God a chance. I'll take him for a test drive. And then when God doesn't heal you immediately or take that evil person out of your life immediately or heal that relationship immediately or fix your job or your income situation immediately, what you do is you turn it back in. And that's a backslider who, who goes through the motions of being a Christian. They've walked the aisle. They may have even been baptized. And yet, they've never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe that, ex maybe that explains some of you in this room as well. See, the Bible uses, they don't, the Bible doesn't use the word backslidden or backslider. Here's what the Bible says, that they will fall away. They will fall away. Even Jesus talked about people falling away. He's talked about those that have really, truly given their, their lives to him and those who haven't. Those who have only taken him out for a test drive. But those who have truly given their hearts to Jesus, their lives to Jesus, who wants to be that living sacrifice instead of that wiggly worm on his altar, when they come back, they see that he is who he says he is. And Jesus said that people will fall away. I immediately think of Jesus and his disciples. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples had just had their last supper. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So they've just had their last meal together. 
And now they're leaving that home where they had their last meal and they're walking to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, do you understand, guys? I'm about to die. I am the Lamb of God. I am the one who has to shed his blood in order for you to be saved. I'm going to be killed. You're going to be left alone. And what did the disciples do, especially Peter, right? Hey, don't worry about it. No matter what happens, even if you die, I will always be by you. I will never deny you. I'll never run away from you. I'll never say I don't know you and love you. And well, we know how that turned out for Peter, don't we? He failed three times before the night was even over. Peter and the rest of the disciples, they had fallen away. They come to that crisis of faith. And they didn't know what to do, so they ran. They did the easy thing instead of the hard thing, and they ran. But we know that it was a temporary crisis of faith because all we have to do is go to the book of Acts. And we see Peter and the other disciples, what are they doing? They're preaching boldly and proudly and courageously that Jesus is the only way, that he is the Lamb of God, and that the people killed Jesus It was not anyone else's fault, but it was yours and mine. He died for you and me. His heavenly father made him a sacrifice so that we could have everlasting life. So for a temporary time, Peter and the others, they backslid. See, a transformed life is marked by willing surrender. Willing surrender. Becoming a living sacrifice is evidence of a transformed life. And a transformed life is evidence of someone living a sacrificial life. And we need to understand that there is a big difference between transforming and conforming. Look at verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In 1978, I thought about this in the first service, I was 12 years old, but in 1978, there were farmers in Japan, they they began growing these watermelons that they shipped all across the world. I mean, everywhere you could go, you could find these watermelons from Japan. And guess what? They sold here in America for $200 a piece. How many of you have bought that $200 watermelon? Me neither. But they must be very special, right? And they were special because they were square. Look at that picture. Have you ever seen a square watermelon before? Isn't that awesome? And you think, why in the world would anybody want a square watermelon? Well, the reason that the farmers wanted a square watermelon is because they could put more in a refrigerator and they could stack them easier and they could make more money. Pretty smart, huh? And so they would take that little watermelon and they would put it into a plexiglass box. And as that watermelon grew, it what? It conformed to the environment that it was living in. And I wonder how many Christians today, they put themselves in that little plexiglass box and they're conforming to the environment around us. Our culture, our society, the world around us is pressing us into something that is unnatural. And here's the thing about these square watermelons. They're really cool looking, aren't they? But they're inedible. You can't even eat them. 
they're immature and not ripe. And here we are as believers and we're conforming into the world around us. We're becoming a square when we're supposed to be something else. And what is that something else? We are to be transformed into the image of Christ. And these inedible watermelons, they cannot fully mature. They can't become what God wants those watermelons to become. Nice and sweet and tasty watermelons. And the same is true for Christians. When we stay in that plexiglass box that the world has put us in, where the society and culture says, you stay here, you conform to our image, we can never be that sweet fruit that God has called us to be. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 34. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It seems strange for David to say to us to taste and to see that the Lord is good, doesn't it? But you think about it, that that word taste, it involves testing or sampling something. Now, I don't like going to Sam's, but when we go to Sam's, I want to go to uh, to Sam's on Saturday. And you know why I want to go to Sam's Club on Saturday? It's because they have all their sampling stations, right? How many of you know when you go to Sam's, they got these little booths sitting around and you can get a little bite of granola or cookie or a little bit of sip of a beverage or whatever. And their hopes is, is that when you taste it, that you'll want to take it home with you, that you'll spend your money on it, that you will take it. And and that's what God is, that's exactly what David is saying to us here. Taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Galatians, Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit. And, and he tells us that we are to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed one. But anyway, as we go and we act, we have that sweet fruit. How many of you, when you go and buy fruit at the store and you bring it home, that orange or that watermelon or that strawberry, and it's bitter and it's tasteless? You've had that fruit before, haven't you? That fruit is no good. You don't want to taste. You don't want to eat that fruit. You want that fruit that is sweet and delicious and ripe and ready to go. But here's the thing. In churches today, we have too many inedible Christians. And when they cut you open, you're bitter and sour and mean and ugly. Instead of being that sweet, juicy fruit that we're called to be. Instead of being something that we're supposed to be in the image of Christ, we're put in this little square container and we bow to the whims of our culture and society. But not only did David say taste, what else does he say? He says, see that the Lord is good. Seeing involves understanding or perceiving. David is telling his readers to try and experience the Lord. He says, let's put him to the test. It's like that test drive. He says, I dare you to put God to the test, to take him for a test drive and take him out there and you see that God is good in everything that we do. We are to discover the goodness of God by personal trial and experience it for ourselves. Have you experienced that God is good? Do you realize that every single thing that God does to you and for you is for your good? Everything. And you go, Brother David, that can't be right. 
because you wouldn't know the financial situation that I'm in, or you won't know that evil person that is in my life, and you wouldn't know about what the kids are doing to me at school. Well, let me tell you, even in those trials, everything that happens, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and he loves you and you love him, everything that happens is for your good and ultimately for his glory, everything. He wants to, instead of you being in that mode, in that plexiglass box of a square uh, conforming to the culture, he says, let my good shine through you and let you become the image of Jesus to others. Everything he wants is for your goodness. And even in God's goodness, he expects, guess what? Obedience and surrender. He expects you to be a living sacrifice, even in his goodness. The person who takes Christianity for a test drive and does not surrender to God completely, maybe they believe that, well, there's something wrong with God, or he's not as big as I thought he was. Or, well, he didn't help me, or my faith is bad, or Christianity is wrong, and I'll try another way to God. And let me tell you, it's not God how big or how small he is. It's not about your faith necessarily. It's certainly not about the faith of Christianity. It has to do with you. Are you willingly surrendering on the altar? And when we do, we will certainly taste and see that the Lord is good. Transformation begins to happen. Did you know this? Transformation begins to happen the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Every time. If you truly are saved, if it wasn't an emotional decision because your friends did it, or I did it to appease my mama, or, well, I think it's the intellectual thing to go do so I can hedge my bet on heaven and hell. If you truly have placed your faith in Jesus alone, then you have everything you need to be transformed, period. And it happens the moment you trust and repent of your sin. True transformation only happens, though, when we turn our lives completely over to him. We cannot hold on to a part of our life and expect full transformation. Do you realize that? And that's what too many of us try to do. Transformation is not about trying to clean up your life. Transformation is not about getting, uh, these, getting rid of a few bad habits. That's not what transformation looks like. And that's exactly what we try to do, though. Uh, we try to help God in the transformation process. But God doesn't need your help. He doesn't want your help. Biblical transformation means to become something different, to let God change you into a new creation. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become a brand new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That is what transformation is. Have you put your faith in Jesus and experienced that kind of transformation? I think of a butterfly. It's a great example of transformation, right? A caterpillar begins life looking nothing like a butterfly. It transforms. We call it metamorphosis. It morphed into something totally different. Now, there's two animals in the animal kingdom that I think are pretty fascinating when we think about transformation. One is the butterfly, of course, that we know. The other is a chameleon. You know what a chameleon is, a little lizard, right? 
And this chameleon has the ability to change colors to whatever its surrounding is. And so if it's blue, I, I looked up a lot of pictures of chameleons over the week, over the last week, and I see green and blue chameleons at the same time, you know, and they can be yellow and blue and every shade in between. Depending on what their environment is, they camouflage themselves, they hide so that they can protect themselves from predators. And here's the problem is too many Christians are being chameleons instead of butterflies. We're camouflaging ourselves with the environment around us. We're hiding in plain sight so nobody can see us. Don't, don't ask me if I'm a Christian. I'm just going to be camouflaged. Don't ask me to go against and buck society or the culture. No, no, I'm just going to be camouflaged. I'm going to stay back here. And here's the problem. Some of these chameleon Christians, some of them are just backsliding. Maybe they've had a... a, a a crisis of faith, and, and it's a temporary thing, but many who call themselves Christians that are living like a chameleon, listen, they were never Christians in the first place because they're living like the culture and the world around them. They blend into their environment. They go along with the culture. They bow to the whims of society. So which are you? Are you a chameleon? blending into the environment around you? Or how about are you a caterpillar that turns into that beautiful butterfly? We know what happens, right? The caterpillar, it makes this cocoon, and after a few days in the cocoon, however long it takes, this metamorphosis happened, and this, during this silent period, this new creation, this new creature comes to life. And that's the manner of transformation God intends that we undergo through offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. See how it all ties together? When we are a living sacrifice, instead of being conformed to the environment around us, we are transformed into the image of Jesus, to the person that he's called us to be. Our bodies, they, they become something new. Maybe not here, but up there, right? So Paul tells us not to conform to the world around us, to not camouflage our faith in Jesus, but to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Again in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about that. Peter says something very similar. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, I like that word ignorant. I know we use it as a slang today. You're ignorant. But you know, there is nothing wrong with that word ignorant. As a matter of fact, it's a great word. If you put a lab coat on me and took me into a lab and said, split that atom, you know what? I'm ignorant. I wouldn't have a clue. What does it mean to be ignorant? It just means that I don't have the knowledge or the information needed. That's all ignorant means, right? And so if you put me into a room and ask me to do something scientific or with physics, I am absolute ignorant. I can tell you that right now. Many of you would probably breeze through that. But being ignorant is not a crutch either. See what Peter tells us, he says, listen, your former ignorance, 
It's not the ignorance that you have right now because we're all ignorant to something. But he says that former ignorance. Notice the similarities. Both Peter and Paul tell us not to conform to either our own desires or the desires of the world. He says that was your former ignorance. He says, and Paul says, renew your mind, right? He says, don't become ignorant anymore. Both tell us to to live wisely by renewing our mind and by the former ignorance that we have. And and, And it's okay if you don't have all of the knowledge, but the moment you trust in Christ, you have enough. Praise God for that, you have enough. I hear all the time people saying, well, I can't trust in Jesus because I don't know enough information. Well, listen, if Jesus is calling you, you better trust him because it's all the information you need. And then once you become a believer, you can renew your mind and you can have that former ignorance. And that's okay. Listen, I don't know everything about theology and doctrine or things I'm still learning But listen, I heard his call when I was a young teenager that said, David, come to me. And I came and it was enough. In Galatians 1, Paul tells us that the the time that we're living in is evil. Would y'all agree with that? Yeah. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that We're not a citizen of this world. Would y'all agree with that? Listen, I know we like to say I'm a proud citizen of America. No, you're not. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your home, this is only temporary. This is only your vacation. This is only the resting. This is only the, the, the travel stop on the road. Our citizenship is in the heaven. And look what he says in Colossians 3. So then set your minds on things that are above and not things on this earth. We know the world is evil. We know that our citizenship is in heaven. So what does he do? He says, then set your your mind on things above. If you want to know what a healthy Christian looks like, start by cultivating these things in your life. Become that living sacrifice. Willingly surrender on his altar. And maybe you've backslidden. Or at the least, your walk with God is not as close today as it was yesterday or a year from now, a year ago. And you go, Brother David, I've slipped away. How do I get it back? How do I walk with God the way that I know he wants me to walk with him? How do I walk with God the way that I want to walk with him? How do I do that? Can I tell you, it's not as hard as you think it is. Number one, I remember what Jesus said. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and your strength. That is how you get back. Do you love God? with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength? Or do you do like most people do? Yeah, I love God, but you know what? I'm gonna keep this little compartment for my kids. Or I'm gonna keep this little part for that sin that I like so much. 
oh, I love God, and I'm going to give him 98% of my heart, but this 2%, I've got to hold on to myself. See, that's not loving God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your strength, is it? Number two, when we love God properly, we will love ourselves properly. And you go, oh, what's hippie David talking about now? Free love. No, that's not it, okay? When we lose our focus on loving God, we begin to love ourselves in unhealthy ways. Did you realize that? And when we love ourselves in unhealthy ways, we do things we should not do because we are redefining what self-love looks like. And when you love yourself without being fully devoted to God, things can get messy, right? You see, the only way to properly love yourself is to see yourself through the lens of the cross of Jesus. Because when we look at ourselves through the lens of the cross, we see how much God loves us that he sent his only son to die for us. And when we look at ourselves through the lens of the cross, we see absolutely how bad we are and how terrible our sin is that sent Jesus to the cross in the first place. Seeing ourselves in light of the cross leads to transformation. And number three, the final step in getting back on track with your walk with God, to being the man or woman that God's called you to be, to have a closer relationship tomorrow with God than you do today, is you need to love others the way that he loves others. And you go, but Brother David, people are messy. They're hard. They, some, you know what? Some of you are unlovable. You're hard to love. You are. But when I love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, and I love myself through the lens of the cross, guess what? It makes you bearable. I can only love you when I love God and myself the way that he sees me. And when, he, when I see myself the way that God sees me, I can see you the way God sees you. And guess what? He loved you enough to die for you too. keeping our eyes and our hearts focused on his love for us and our love for him gives us the ability to see other people through the lens of the cross. And when we set our minds on things above, we will want others to see themselves through the lens of the cross as well, right? So that they too can have a relationship and change their citizenship from this earth to heaven. You remember those square watermelons? I got a couple more pictures. Aren't those cool looking? Whoops. Aren't those cool looking, those square watermelons? Listen, for 200 bucks, I think I'd get a bigger bow, right? But you can see when you cut into it, it's really pretty, isn't it? It's red. It looks like it's going to be delicious. It's going to be that watermelon that you've been waiting for. But instead, it's inedible. Because it was conformed to the culture around it, to its environment, they had to pick it when it was not ripe, it was immature. In order for it to keep its shape, it had to be picked immature. And there's too many Christians in the church today that are being picked immature. You've not allowed God to, to keep you, to hold on to you, to give you the time to mature because you've let the culture come in and press you and squeeze you into something that is not natural. What's natural? 
big old round watermelon, right? How many of you have ever been to, to South Texas, got one of those black diamond babies, right? Huh? Yeah. You put one of those black diamond watermelons in the refrigerator and you cut it open and it just, it's sweet. You can smell the aroma. It is sweet and juicy and you can just just feel it coming down and you don't care, right? It's awesome. That's how God wants you to be to the world around him. Not that unnatural thing, but that one who is a living sacrifice, who is transformed into the image of God. And then you can live your life like David and say, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, your, your greatness. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that we're not the square watermelon, that we'll be the round, natural, juicy, ripe, mature melon to the world around us. We'll share your love and we'll tell people to come and taste and see. Maybe God, there's someone here this morning that needs to do that. They need to put their faith in you alone. Whatever it is, God, maybe there's somebody here that's been backsliding. Maybe they're watching online or even sitting here in one of these pews. Today is the day that they stop and they return to their first love, you, Father. Whatever it is, God, we give this time to you. Just pray that you would move. Make yourself known. In Jesus' name, let's stand together and sing.